Okay, welcome to the Agents of Hope podcast. I'm co-hosting the podcast today. My name is Nizam Hussain. I'm an educational psychologist working in the north of England. And today I'm really honoured and pleased to have John Hattie as my guest. Um, John, now we've talked about this a bit before about introductions and I wasn't sure how to introduce you. So uh, can I just leave that to you? Uh, who are you? Uh, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks, Sam, and it's good to be in the north of England. Um, I live, however, in Melbourne, Australia, and I've recently retired from 50 years of working at um, universities, uh, mainly in New Zealand, Australia, and the US. I also am the federal government's appointee chair of the board of the Australian Institute of Teachers and School Leaderships, which I still am, which is I really thoroughly enjoy it because it allows me to get to meet all the ministers, director generals and be involved in the policy of education in this country. And as I'm most proud of the fact that I'm our granddad. I have four granddaughters and my first grandson is coming in, in November. And that keeps me truly busy and reminds me all the time about why we're in this business. What about you, you Nizam? You said you're an educational psychologist. Tell me, you tell us a little about you. Yeah, so I was originally a primary school teacher a long time ago, So, um, and I've been an educational psychologist for 12 years. I've taken off specific roles, although I've worked in the same authority, I've taken taken on specific roles around specific areas of interest around 16 to 25, and also recently, for the last four or five years, I've had a specific remit for psychology for learning. And that's what brings us to this conversation, really. I've got four children. Um, one of them, you'll be pleased to know, absolutely loves his cricket. Um, yes. And he's uh, playing at a fairly decent standard, for like the regional West Yorkshire standard, so, which I'm, I'm spending a lot, of, a lot of weekends just travelling up and down uh, Yorkshire, trying to, uh, yeah, and sometimes maybe not watching as much action as you want to, because that's the life of a cricketer, really. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, 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 as... You know, because we've talked about it, I've been a cricket umpire, a cricket coach for many years, cricket administration, and uh, just as long as he doesn't play like Jeffrey Boycott, then I'm fine, then I'm happy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Recently, he did get uh, 15 runs out of 66 balls, so maybe it's not maybe it's not that far. So uh, Chris yeah. Tavarath territory. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose uh, you know, like you said, uh, it's 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 a pleasure and honour to have you here speaking to us. And the reason I initially took space with you, because I did hear you speak in Edinburgh a couple of times, quite a few years ago. I've read a lot of your books, my favourite being Visible Learning and the Science of Learning, partly because it chimes with my own kind of interest in the more technical aspects of learning. Um, and the fact that actually a lot of the content in that book is quite prominent in kind of today's thinking around use of kind of cognitive science and use of evidence-based practice. But I wanted to kind of go back a little bit around what is visible learning? Why did you do it? How did you do it? Look, my history in universities and my PhD and virtually all my career is as a psychometrician, a measured one person. And I taught those courses on research design and statistics that you loved to do, didn't you, Nizam? Good. Um, and so I'm a bit of an outsider to the teaching side of the world. And when I started in academia, I started to meet 
obviously other colleagues, and they all told me what I truly should be studying if I'm going to make a difference to kids' learning. And my observation was, isn't it incredible that everybody that talks to me passionately tells me what the answer is, it's what they're doing, and it's different. And similarly, when I met and started in the teacher education business, you meet teachers and they all tell you what makes the difference, and that the difference is dramatic. And when you read the articles, when we publish thousands of articles a year, and they always seem to find support for what they do, and it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I was a kid once. It's not true. Um, and so I thought, why is it that we're in this business where everything seems to work? And the other confluence is that when I started in 1976, Gene Glass introduced this thing called meta-analysis, which is um, you know, people go away and do a study, other people do other studies. Meta-analysis people come along and collect those various studies on a topic and analyse them for two things. One, to find out what the average magnitude is. Is it smaller or bigger or large effect? But critically, they also look at the second thing, which is, and does the size of that effect differ if you're in maths and music, if you're five-year-olds or 15, if you're in uh, Bradford and Leeds or if you're in Melbourne or Sydney? And I started doing some of those things, doing some meta-analyses. Then I thought one day, why wouldn't I do a meta-analysis of meta-analyses? to see if I could ask the relative question, the relativity question. Are the things that work better or worse? And get away from what we currently do. Like the current jargon, Nazim, is, and your country's big on it. You've got to have evidence. Well, one of the things visible learning has shown is that for 95 to 98% of kids, we can improve their achievement. And every teacher in the world can have evidence that what they do works because it's the wrong question. It's not what works, it's what works best. And so visible learning, and and why it took me 25 years to write the book, that it was a hobby, so I didn't have to spend the whole time, and I did spend a lot of time saying, what's the common denominators between the stuff that's have the biggest effect compared to the stuff that doesn't have such a big effect? And many of my critics often ignore that. They just look at the league table of influences and say things like, oh, yeah, of course they They're not separate, they overlap, and blah, blah, blah. Well, they've never opened the book, because the whole book is about that overlap. And what I've been doing in the last 10 years is, um, well, actually, it's not so much me, but a team that I've had around me is implement these policies in schools. And now we've been, uh, we did an evaluation last year of the 10 years. We have about 10 to 15,000 schools we've worked in, trying to understand how we actually can implement these ideas in schools. And that's what the visible learning message is about, and it keeps me occupied. It keeps me happy. People still keep doing meta-analyses, so I've got lots of work still to do. So it's fun. Yeah, one of the fascinating things I um, found out when I first read Visible Learning was around almost anything had an effect size of almost almost everything worked if you looked at it. But actually, and then you introduced the hinge point of 0.4 effect sizes. And you're right, some critics have said around people taking that too much at face value and too literally where they've almost forgotten the context of the implementation or the opportunity cost kind of discussions and simply taking it as a bit of a hierarchical kind of. Yes. So is there something that you want to say about that or what, what surprises happened? What things surprised you and what things um, didn't surprise you? What things, what, what did you find out about well, yeah, firstly, you're right. Like the point four is the average of all the influences. 
You know, I get critics saying you can't get greater than 0.4 in high school. Well, of course you can. Um, and, yeah, probably in the early days, I probably didn't help um, with the 0.4 because, uh, like, in answer to your second question, what surprised me? Take teacher subject matter knowledge. Uh, it has an effect size of around about 0.1. And if you take a incorrect understanding of my work, you say, oh, 0.1 is less than 0.4, we shouldn't bother about it. It's the exact opposite. Because it's so low, we should worry about it deeply. And the argument I put is, and wouldn't it be nice if we actually accepted the evidence? And the evidence is clear. Subject matter knowledge doesn't matter. It doesn't matter with regular kids, with special needs kids. It doesn't matter with early childhood. And the only question in town is why doesn't it matter? And I've spent a lot of my research time over the last 10 or so years looking at many of these influences that are low, like subject matter knowledge. And it turns out, after about five failures, that there's two things going on in subject matter knowledge. One is having the subject matter knowledge, whatever you want to call it, pedagogical content knowledge, you name it. But the second thing is you have to teach in a particular way for it to have an effect. Like here in Australia, we've spent over a billion dollars over the last 10 years taking teachers out of schools and training them up in maths and science, putting them back in the classroom. And we know it's had no effect whatsoever. We're throwing that money away. Because if teachers stand up front, talk for 90% of the time, ask 200 questions a day about the facts, increasing the subject matter knowledge makes not one over of a difference. But if they ask more student questions and understand what students don't understand and make mistakes about, then subject matter knowledge can make a huge difference. So the fact that it hasn't made a difference is because we add it to our current mantra, our grammar of schooling, which is talk, talk, talk. Come to school, sit up straight, watch the teacher work. But if you change the nature of that teaching, it does work. So that's a good example. Class size is the other one. Very low effects. Um, once again, the right question is, why is it so low? And the answer is pretty simple. If you take a teacher in a class of 30, put them in a class of 15, and they teach the same way, who's surprised? Um, and I've actually done some of the qualitative meta-analyses in class size, showing that there is, in smaller classes, there is more teacher talk. There is less feedback. There is less group work. Now, understanding that means that maybe if we are going to spend our billions on class size, we need to retrain the teachers. Some of the ones at the other, ex other side of the equation, I never expected, like our new teacher expectations was pretty powerful. Um, and from my colleagues' work, Christy Ruby Davies, I knew that teachers who have high expectations tend to have it for all the students. And teachers with low expectations tend to have it for all the students. And both of them are, are very successful, one good and one bad. But what I hadn't appreciated was that student expectations is double or twice, triple the size of teacher expectations. And we haven't spent enough time understanding what the expectations students have are, they have for their lessons. And I, I could go on for a long time because it's the surprise factor. But I'll have one more and then pause. If you go back to the distribution of all the effect sizes, you know, as you, you agree, 95 to 98% of the things that are positive. Now, Zim, I didn't expect that. I expected, given the usual criticisms of teachers and schools, there would be a lot more negative influences. And there isn't. Uh, that's good news. Uh, the bad news is that we also, as a profession, love to look for failure and fix it. Whereas my mantra is the opposite. I want to look for success 
and grow it. And the, the two things that dominate the top half of the distribution are teacher expertise or educator expertise, because those include school leaders, and teachers teaching students the strategies of learning, which I hope we can come back to when we talk about agency. But go to that first one, the expertise of teachers. It dominates. Now, some people still get angry. They say, no, it's not that. It's about the resources. It's about, look look at your country. You love to talk about the things that don't matter. You fiddle with the curriculum ad nauseum. You obsess about assessments to an incredible degree. You invent new kinds of schooling, trusts, academies, whatever, that have a pretty trivial effect on kids' learning. But you won't deal with the expertise of kids. There's more variability in kids' performance as a function of teachers within a school than across your schools. And until you have the courage to say that, but let me finish on a very positive note. I want to have success and scale it up. And in the old days when I was allowed to travel the world, what keeps me going is that there's incredible success out there. And as I say to every minister, and in my eight years being um, the chair of ASIL, uh, between the ministers and director generals, I'm up to the 59th one. We change them a lot. I say every one of them, in the term of your office, minister, it should be a badge of courage that you don't go to Finland, Singapore or Shanghai. Have you the courage to recognise the excellence here in your hometown? Form a coalition of success around that and invite others in. The biggest problem there's them in education, we don't have courage. And it's such an uh, amazing, empowering view, isn't it, Um, in terms of amplifying what's working well rather than concentrating on what's not working well and trying to eradicate or eliminate that, actually, because if you amplify what's working well, by default, you eliminate what's not working well. It's almost like... There's a problem there, Nazim, in that when I work with schools, and we introduce the notion of de-implementation, what are you going to stop? And they all tell me about ten things, but they never stop them. (laughs) And I think we've got to get smarter at stopping things. The thing I suppose that was interesting in the effect sizes was, and it kind of, it goes back to what you said earlier in terms of the things, the factors that were at the top and some of the factors which may, may not have much of an effect size. One of the things that, and also kind of chimes with your thing around teacher talk and questioning was factors such as direct instruction being quite high, which traditionally have been thought about as more kind of teacher-led, with lots of kind of interaction in terms of questioning and further questions. So how is it, are you saying that it's not what the teacher uses, but actually seeing the impact of the strategies that they use? Yeah, like referring back to what you said before, like in the early days, it still happens. Teachers look at the, the league table list and they do the stuff at the top and say, oh, therefore I'm doing a good job. I'm not doing the stuff at the bottom. And I switched the focus many years ago and said, no, it's about know thy impact. What I do is give you probabilities. But if you take take reciprocal teaching, uh, take direct instruction, it's up high on the list. But if you implement it poorly, you're not going to have an impact. And the trouble with direct instruction is it's so often misunderstood as scripted lessons following a script. And you know, quite frankly, maybe you and your um, listeners could help me. I want a better term. Like I've looked at intentional teaching. Uh, some people use explicit um, instruction. Uh, there is a, a pretty strong theory behind it. It's not just picking up a script and talking all the time. But, but, he, but here's the other concern. 
I want to make a distinction between learning the content and the deeper learning about relating and, and transferring it. And my argument is both are important, the content and the relationship and the deeper learning. And all this current debate about one or the other to me is absurd. You can't think about things and relate ideas unless you have ideas. So I want both of them. And one of the arguments I'm writing at at the moment is that some of the, if you look at the teaching methods, and there's about four or five hundred different teaching methods that we've been able to identify, virtually all of them are willy-nilly, they apply to everything. But if you then say, which ones are more effective for the content to surface, then direct instruction is pretty good. Now, can it be used for the deeper relationship? Yes, but it's harder. Take something like reciprocal teaching. Is it good for the content? No. Is it good for the deeper? Absolutely. So why aren't we putting them together? Direct instruction, reciprocal teaching. And of course, the acronym is superb. Who wouldn't want to teach dirt today? But I think we've got to get a lot smarter at knowing when particular teaching methods relate to the nature of the constructively aligned with what happens in the classroom. And that's hardly spoken about as teachers say, oh, I use this method or that method. We won't employ anyone on our team who says they use this particular teaching method because we know they're not listening to where the kids are in the learning. Kids need multiple different methods. If the first doesn't work, you need a different one. There's something about that kind of universal application without really seeing the nuanced differences that whatever research you're looking at, that's set in a particular kind of context. And actually you can use different methods depending on the cohort, depending on the subject knowledge, depending on the level of proficiency for the students. Um, and that gets to the heart of what I mean, what I understand differentiation to be. Whereas too often differentiation is putting different kids in different groups. No, differentiation is different to teaching strategies depending on where the kids are in the learning cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I think what comes up strongly when I read your books is and when I hear you speak is that sense of story. Although I see you as a bit of a numbers man in effect sizes and so on, you always talk about um, listen to my story or think about this is the story I've got. And actually, it shows to me that narrative is quite important to you. And why is that? Why do you always mention the fact that actually listen to the story? Don't always look at the numbers. Listen to the story. Well, that's my background. I'm a measurement person. I'm a statistician. I'm into test development. I love tests. I love measurement. But my whole focus as a measurement person is it's about the interpretation of the data. And so often, for example, when kids do a test or a teacher does a test, they see the results as a number. The numbers was always intended to be a proxy for an interpretation. And when we developed, for example, the New Zealand assessment scheme for, for primary and high schools back in the year 2000, we actually created it without numbers. And we went straight to the interpretation. And what we're very proud of is it's a system which is voluntary. Teachers don't have to use it, but 80% of teachers are New Zealand are still using that tool 20 years later because we provide the kids, we provide the teachers with more interpretation. And so when I come across into the teaching area with visible learning, it's no surprise to me that it's my job is to tell the story, is to tell the interpretation. My job is to build a model and understanding of how things relate together. Yes, I, I could have just produced all the numbers and said, there it is, go and do it. In fact, last year, we released MetaX, which is a free website that has all the data on it. And my challenge to anyone out there is don't spend 30, 40 years collecting the data. I've done that. There it is, free. It's yours. 
come up with a better interpretation. And as in the first person who comes up with a better interpretation than me, I'll be the first to support them. The other thing is that as more and more meta-analyses get published, like I'm now up to 1,700 of them, I'm now adding them to MetaX. And so it's the up-to-date site to go to. But it is about the story. And it comes back to teachers. Like a teacher says to you, and they say to me so often, come into my class and watch me teach. And I get so frustrated with that. That's the last thing that should happen. I want to hear their story about their teaching. I know my story about their teaching. Could be right, could be wrong. What's worse, how on earth can I understand what it's like to sit in that class as a seven-year-old and create a story about what it means to be in that class? I can't do that. And so I want to know what their interpretations are, and that's why we spend so much time looking at mind frames. How are you interpreting what's happening? And collective efficacy, very, very high, are powerful. It means, are you prepared, Nazim, to have others interpret what's happening in your class from your data? Is it okay for others to critique your interpretation? And isn't it unbelievably incredible that the highest effect size are when teachers work together to critique each other, then the kids are the biggest beneficiaries? Yeah, and that, that, you know, that collective teacher efficacy, I think you call it, is, is amazing. And when people get together and they can critique each other. And do we, I suppose it's, are the environments conducive to that kind of high trust, low stakes kind of environment? And uh, do we actually promote that where people can have interesting debates, discussions without feeling judged or evaluated? If you go into staff rooms, if you do a walkthrough, the best walkthrough you can do is go into the teacher's staff room or the professional learning or the, the, the afternoon staff meeting and do a walkthrough of that. And you typically find one person talking a whole lot of time. You don't see that trust you're talking about. Um, teachers feel very uncomfortable sometimes raising difficult problems, difficult kids, difficult things. But that's the very thing we want them to do in their classrooms to create the same kind of trust. Um, and this shows you the incredible power of school leadership. But like I've worked in your country, we work with Osiris in your country, and we have a large number of schools, even up in your part of the world, and a lot of it's tr- creating that trust in the staff room. Um, we don't want to, when we leave, we don't want to leave nothing. We want to make sure that we have structures set up so that those teachers that are in that top half of the distribution, of which there are many, many, many of them, I, my guess in England, or my estimate in England, 60 to 70 percent, that we hear them thinking aloud. And you don't hear that. Uh, and just let me ask you a question then. My observation, teachers of all professions are the biggest deniers of their expertise. Why? They say things, oh, it wasn't us, it was the kids did the work. The parents supported them. The resources were there. Take COVID. Like, I get angry when I hear the thing that last year there was learning loss. If you actually start to look at the evidence, and there is a meta-analysis out now, class Zara, the, the average effect size was slightly negative, slightly, slightly, minus 0.07, which I think you could pick up reasonably quickly. And I think that attests to the incredible expertise of teachers last year to minimise learning loss. But I hear teachers talking about learning loss, and you think, wait a moment, for about 10 to 15% of the kids, yes, it was negative and it, it was magnified. But for the majority of the kids, well-being went up. We maintained no different to previous years. And that's because of teacher expertise. Why do we deny our expertise? 
Good, great question. I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but great question. Now, hopefully, some of the listeners will be able to shed some light on that. Really, um, and I think part of that will be around um, the culture that we've kind of created in terms of the high stakes culture and people maybe not feeling confident to say that they are those kind of change agents. I'm not sure. Let me give you a simple example. Here in Melbourne, we've had 160 days of um, stage four lockdown. In fact, we go into lockdown again tonight. Um, schools are closed yet again. Um, parents dramatically realised what expertise teachers had. Some of them struggled with their one or two precious kids. You, if you're in a high school, you have 200 kids a day for 200 days a year. It requires incredible expertise to do what they couldn't do in their homes with one or two of their own little kids. Right now, parents, more than any other time in our history, appreciate our expertise. And we hope we don't throw that away. Yeah, absolutely. I think if, I think you mentioned the mind frames a little bit, and that kind of takes me on to our next question, which is around, because this podcast is about hope, and for me, hope is that kind of sense of agency, sense of optimism, kind of value-based action and kind of goal-directed action and systems that allow those things to flourish. And uh, one, of the, one of the things in the visible learning was around teacher mind frames. Can you talk us through some, I think you had eight or ten mind frames that you felt if teachers had these, then that would lead on to kind of better outcomes or a better way of thinking about things or better decision making. So can you talk us through some of those mind frames? Well, what happened, Nazim, is as I started more and more getting into the writing and the work and hearing the criticisms and the use, it was that incredible focus on what teachers do that was driving me crazy. Um, because some teachers do certain things that has an effect. Some teachers do the same thing and it does or it doesn't have an effect. And when you go to teacher sessions, you know, they, they want to talk about what they do, about their resources. And you know, the whole theme that's coming through, no, it's not about what they do, it's about how they think about what they do. And so... Partly I was talking to my friend Carol Dweck, and you know, she has one mind frame, growth versus um, fixed. And I said to her, you, know, you get into a lot of difficulties because you have one, and if people don't like that one, they throw all your work out. And as um, I would agree with her, the majority of people totally misunderstand her work. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be smarter than that. I'm going to have ten. I actually have got one that I repeat ten times. And so, yes, I have ten mind frames for teachers and school leaders. In fact, uh, my son and I have just finished, uh, in the final stages now, of finishing a book on visible learning for parents, around ten mind frames for parents. And we've also wrote a book a couple of years ago on student mind frames, which we're updating at the moment. And the whole idea is, this is the way you think. Like, the one that really matters is when you walk into a classroom, or when you walk into a staff room as a, as a leader, I want you to say... My job here today is to evaluate my impact. And then all good things follow. Now, of course, it means you have to have skills in evaluation. And absolutely, you have to have very clear understandings of what you mean by impact. Like if your impact is to get through the curriculum or get the kids to pass tests or worse, create an interesting, authentic, real-world exercise that the kids can be engaged in you're not going to have much effect at all on those kids in terms of their achievement and their progress. But if you have that focus on progress to achievement, or what you said before, 
making sure the class is safe for kids to make mistakes and see failure as their friends. And you constantly check. And this comes back to, I know we're going to go here, I know we're going to go here. It comes back to this sense of kids' agency. What is that kid's sense of agency? Like some of our high-achieving kids have incredibly low agency. They completely depend on the teacher for the next step. Notice what happened in COVID. Those kids who had some agency, who were able to do self-regulation and all the fancy words we talk about, they were more successful. The ones that depended on the teacher weren't so. But if I came and walked through your school, in fact, my wife did a study in your country a couple of years ago using an app that she's created, so we know to the decimal point what percentage of time teachers talk in England. You talk 89% of the time. Now, here's the bad news, the conspiracy. Kids above average want you to talk more. They want you to talk more about the facts because that's the game they're good winners in. That's the games they want to be good at. The kids below average want you to shut up and listen to how they're thinking so you can improve that or to listen how you actually are thinking about solving problems, not talking to me about content, which which dominates. And so this is what we get at with the mind frames. It was, do you have the right balance of dialogue and monologue? Have you got this, the Goldilocks principle of challenge? Not too hard, not too easy, not too boring. Do you see yourself as the agent of change in the room? Do you see and are prepared to collaborate with others? And if you go through all 10 of them, for parents, for kids, for whatever, they're all about how you think. And that's really what I'm coming to over the years is that this thinking. And, and remember, we've got some stunning examples in schools at the moment. But often they're socialised themselves and they are socialised to silence in the staff room while we talk about things and kids and curriculum and assessment. Um, like one of the things we've done recently in our AIDSL work, we have many videos of um, great practice. We've just added two buttons. One you press and you can hear the teacher thinking as they're teaching. And the other, you can hear the kid thinking as they're teaching. And that's where we want to move the discussions to. Fantastic. I suppose when I was listening to you there and I was thinking about how do we get the debate moving from, if we think about these mind frames, someone could misinterpret that and kind of think actually these mind frames are more individualised and actually individuals take responsibility for that. But I suppose those mind frames are generated or flourish within systems and within interactions. So what kind of systems, school national accountability systems, do you think enable those mindset, mind frames to grow, to evolve? Well, I'm a, a great fan and um, it's been applied in, in, in some countries um, where there are national standards for what kids are expected to do. Like one of my frustrations in England and here in Australia is that we have a age-based curriculum, which is bonkers, because if you go into any age group, you will find multiple levels of performance. So the first thing I'd do in England if I was your minister, not the first thing, but one of the things I'd do early up is the minister is abolish age-based curriculum and have a levels-based curriculum. And then I'd say to each school, not the teacher, each school, you are responsible for providing evidence about where your students are relative to the levels-based curriculum and what progress you're making. Now, I'm going to have to, as a government, give you resources to do that. Uh, one of the hardest things, and, and you suffer for it in your country and, and here in Australia as well, but it certainly wasn't true in New Zealand at the time, you have very, very few tools to look at progress. Um, and it's all about achievement. And high achievement is not necessarily a good thing 
if the kids aren't making progress. So I'd be asking schools to put that their evidence on the table because they say, what I want to hear is I don't want their data. And that's where your Ofsted and your government drives me crazy. All they want is you to collect data. I want to hear the interpretation of your data. I want to know what you're going to do as a consequence of having collected that data. This is this data on this kid. So what? Where to next? And that's the debate I want in the staff rooms. And when this was introduced into the New Zealand context many years ago, since abolished, but when it was introduced, we had much richer discussions in the staff room about moderation, about impact, about progress, about achievement. And we got that discussion, that thinking, out into the open. And it was scary at times because at some places we saw arguments about, all oh, these kids can't do it, they come from low backgrounds, they're immigrants, so minority kids and all that. And you think, that's the problem, that kind of thinking. And in some cases, we took some of those principles to other schools like theirs where they got the opposite kind of thinking, and it was a revelation to them. Now, I think that's what we should be doing. But you you have an inspectorate system that changes its mind every couple of years and means it's rather random. And New Zealand had an inspectorate system, and what they did was they checked to make sure that the decisions that schools were making was based on reasonable interpretations of the data. So suddenly... They weren't responsible for what you taught in the classroom and how you teach. Oh, my gosh, I don't care. I couldn't care less how any teacher teaches. I only care about the impact of their teaching. So that's what I do under the accountability system. It works very well. Now, it does expose problems, schools that have some problems with their ways of thinking, and it's not related to socioeconomic status. Some of our higher schools with high-achieving kids had some of the lowest quality of thinking about interpretation. You know, the... They're bright kids anyway, they're going to do well. Well, that's killing us as a nation because those kids deserve at least a year's growth for a year's input too. And so bringing that kind of thinking to the fore, I think, is pretty critical. And it's uh, it's such an interesting thing you said there about you you don't, it's about not necessarily the strategy, but actually the impact of that strategy that really matters to you. And I think that's why we get muddled here at the moment around the false dichotomy between direct instruction or what they see as more progressive methods of teaching, knowledge-rich curriculum versus like a skill-based curriculum. And actually, the things are so intertwined. I actually spent a week with Kurt Engelman, Zig Engelman's son in Oregon. And I, th- I agree with you. I think the interpretation around direct instruction, you know, if you really look at Zig Engelman's journey, the, the, the program construction, the mastery tests along those programs, the real critical thinking around example sequences, all those things can be lost if, you, if you're just dismissing a whole idea. And actually, I think we all need to be a bit more hopeful and optimistic around what strategies people can use rather than just judging a group of people and creating otherness. Yep, I'm with you on that. When the book first came out, they wrote to me and said, isn't it wonderful how direct instruction came out? And I wrote back and said, yes, but it's probably the most misunderstood word in the business. Isn't it time to come up with a new name? I got a very icy response, <laughs> and that's why I can do sense. But it yeah. is time for a new name. I, that, those debates are crazy. And, you know, and the other thing is, and I suppose this takes us to kind of a more deeper kind of maybe chat about what we feel is the purpose of education. So is that something that you think about? Like what, in your mind, what is the purpose of education? Like does that, 
because that must have that that kind of more deeper core belief must our ideas must have a big influence of subsequent action. So, what, what does John Hattie think about the purpose of education? Well, the criticism I get is that I'm obsessed with achievement, uh, and, it, and it is the case that um, visible learning is about achievement. And I never really expected the book to to sell as well as it has done. Um, for goodness sake, it was my 10th book, whatever happened to the previous line. And so I didn't even attend in those initial days to it. But I did say right up front that there are many other things in school besides achievement. And like the one that you mentioned is the one that's most powerful to me. Is the school an inviting place to come to, um, to, to, to learn, to make mistakes, etc.? And there was a, for some reason, in Denmark, they adopted the visible learning program and implemented it in many, many schools. And some teachers didn't like it. And the minister made, in my opinion, an incredible misunderstanding of it when she announced when she was going to promote visible learning that um, teachers, therefore, were going to lose their one day a week that they had off from face-to-face class uh, to do their preparation, which did not go down well. And I got blamed for that, which, as I got up the next minute after she spoke and said, I've never said that, minister. I warned her I was going to say that, by the way. Um, and so... One of the critics, uh, a guy called Sten Larson, Never Larson, he'd written many articles and for whatever reason he'd sent them to me an email and started a conversation. And one day in the email he said, I want to come out to Australia and just talk with you for a couple of weeks. And so I thought, mm, do I really want this? I'm no sociologist, I'm no philosopher, I love that kind of stuff but it's not my expertise. But then I love critique. It's the essence of what I do. So I said, yes. And he came out, and we had a wonderful time. We're totally different in our perspectives, totally different background, and we ended up writing a book called The Purposes of Education. Okay, so, well. Yes, I have, yep, so I've had a lot of thinking about this, um, and in the book we have a, it. It's based on the discussions we had over those two weeks, and we talk about, from my point of view, the basket of goods idea that you know, I look at. Um, my argument is that, we do not create kids for the future. The kids are going to create their future. And so what we do right now is we have the opportunity as adults of the older generation to set up principles, um, beliefs, um, interactions that we think are valuable, like respect for self and respect for others, that we hope they will take as part of their future. I think that um, the, we do have a job to pass on our interpretations of humanity and civilization, so that they are better placed to critique it when it's their turn to create their humanity and civilization. I do think that we should prepare kids to be kids. It's the best preparation to being an adult. I do think that um, I want, for my own kids, I want them to learn to give back. Um, so I need, and the one that I want them most of all is I want them to learn to become their own teachers. And like I'm a granddad now. My oldest granddad's grandkids five. Um, the others are from babies right through. Um, they are stunningly good at being their own teachers. They teach me so much stuff, and oh my gosh, it's fun. They love repetition. They learn from retrieval, all the kind of things. And I think, why is it? By age eight, they'll have lost all that and be turned into students to sit and watch. And so it can be done, and sometimes we undo it at schools, but 
this notion that I want to teach kids how to be their own teachers, to know when to seek help, to know how to interpret um, their work, to know how to interpret their assessments, to, to know where to go next. And uh, as in, we've got a very fancy word for it. We call it self-regulation. We call it agency. To me, it's simpler. I want kids to be their own teachers. Like, watch them in playing their cricket. Watch them in their video games. They're stunningly good teachers. They work out strategies to know how to improve. Why can't we do that in maths and music and history? That's my passion about the purpose of schooling. I want kids to be taught to be their own teachers. I, mean, I suppose this is where the debates start, don't they, around those, those, some of those tasks might be more natural or, uh, and whereas more subject academic learning needs a lot, a bit more explicit instruction. And well, because of the content, yes. And, but, but you take something like, um, Angry Birds, being a, quite a, an aficionado on it and a long history of playing Angry Birds. There is a lot of skill. There is a lot of knowledge that you can build up. Now, is it worthwhile? Not really for the future. Um, it makes me enjoy the moment. But yes, there are some things in history and maths and music and phys ed that I want kids to build on. Because here's the problem with being your own teacher. You don't know what you don't know. And part of being a teacher is having the skills to go out and find the people. And like I bet you go out and listen to some of the, the gurus in rocket science or whatever it is we don't know about. We know how to read the textbooks as adults, as educated adults, so that we can build this up. That's the kind of things that are necessary to be a teacher. And so, yes, why do we do English as opposed to um, billiards? And why do we do maths as opposed to angry birds? Because doing those subjects helps you better understand how to be a teacher of other subjects. And that's a very hot debate. Let me I can just be careful about that. But I do think there are some some topics but then I ask, I don't know about you, Nazim, the calculus I learned when I was in the, year, the last two years of schools, have I used it? Well, actually, I have, because I'm in the statistician area. Some of the ways in which we did literature stuff in those last two years, probably not. But in doing that, hopefully I built up my skills as being a teacher. Hope I built up understandings of how to have multiple strategies of learning, so when the first one doesn't work, I have other ones. We call our model, by the way, the Kenny Rogers model. You've got to know when to hold them, you've got to know when to play them. And the skill in learning is knowing when to seek help, when not to seek help, when to try direct instruction or when to try problem solving. And those are the skills I think you can pick up. We should pick up. And that, to me, is the fundamental purpose of education. Fantastic. I think uh, one final question I want to ask you, you know, as, a, as educational psychologists, sometimes we work extensively with children who get labelled as having special educational needs. And I think I was interested in uh, some of the factors there around ability grouping and the negative effect size that can have overall. Also around, actually, an interesting thing was about not labelling students, because I imagine that perhaps creates uh, a more of a reductionist view of certain students if, if labelling is that. So, so what in terms of some students who get deemed to have or are described as having special educational needs, and I know this is a general question, what kind of things do you think help those students? Well, about five years ago at the University of Melbourne, we abolished special education. It didn't go down well. We got a lot of criticism. We had some staff left because they believed that teaching autism was different from teaching gifted, was different from teaching deaf, whatever. 
And we employed um, Lorraine Graham to come in and we said, what we want her to do is we want you to develop a learning interventions program. Every kid needs a learning intervention. And what it's, it's going stunningly successful. And probably the mo- one of the most unanticipated successes is whilst it's been a voluntary course in our teacher education program, now every student wants to take it because every student needs a learning intervention. So my principle is this, Nazim. What works for all kids doesn't always work for special education kids. But what works for special education kids works for all students. We need learning interventions. Like classifying kids as autism, and sadly here in Victoria we have schools that you can't go to unless you're autistic kids, which I think is bonkers. As if all those kids are the same. Every one of those kids needs a learning intervention, not dictated by a label. And that label sets incredibly low expectations not just for the teacher, but sadly for the kid. And like if you work, I'm sure you do, with those kids, you can get more visibility about your impact than you can with many kids in the other parts of the distribution. So we can learn as teachers how to see impact, to have that discussion, to us to get that joy from that impact. And so that's why I would argue that every kid needs a learning intervention. And I'm not a fan of labelling. Do I care about special needs kids? No, I care about every kid, particularly those kids too. Now, absolutely fantastic. Exactly. Kind of chimes with what some of my thinking around that as well. And um, in terms of not being a homogenous group, and actually it's only through the response to intervention or assessment through teaching that you can identify a subgroup that needs further kind of help. And then one last question, because I know we're, sorry, we're, I know we're coming close to an hour, but one, one interesting question. I was, I was thinking about, um, what you would say to John Hattie, 30, who's 30 years old, and what kind of things, if you were, if you were going, if you were 30 years old now, what kind of, and knowing what you do now, what kind of focus would you have? If you've got another 30 years of research, what kind of things would you focus on? Uh, Sorry, that was right really a badly asked question. Go on. It's okay. I can have fun with it. <laughs> um, right at the moment, my um, focus is very much on how teachers think, on the thinking strategies of students. Uh, like when we did um, our metasynthesis of learning strategies a few years ago, I thought, oh, okay, Janet's got 20,000 hours of transcripts of teachers' lessons, primarily from, um, from, from England. And so I'm going to read those and find examples of either when a teacher listens to a student solving a problem or when a student who has not succeeded listens to the teacher solving the problem. After 4,000 hours, we gave up because we couldn't find one. And so trying to get teachers to, as they teach a class, in every class, focus on one learning strategy, just one, just one. Teach them how to outline, teach them how to um, deliberately practice. It is a really, really tough job. Um, we assume kids can do it, and if they can't, we have labels for them. They're dumb or they're all these kind of things, and it's very sad. So that's one of the obsessions. I think the other one, like COVID showed us, that um, one word we hardly ever use in education is efficiency. And many kids last year said, I can do in two hours at home what takes me five to six hours at school. What do I do at school all day? So how can we be more efficient? I think that... um, the technology, which has been coming for 50 years, has a very low effect size. It still has. But the big breakthrough is going to be the use of social media. 
Kids learn in groups. They learn from each other, as we do as teachers. The thing that we've discovered here in Australia in our actual organisation, teachers are the biggest of all professions. They're the biggest users of social media. And we've got so many apps that we have now getting teachers to talk to each other across schools, thinking aloud. I think that's really exciting if we open that whole notion up. Um, now, what I probably won't do is go back into teacher education area because that's one of the most frustrating ones. But we are doing a, um, a part of a, a following a program at the moment of a teacher education program that's entirely taught through iPhones and earphones. Um, incredibly successful because we can use artificial intelligence to monitor what these teachers are doing as they're in the classroom. We have about twenty to 30,000 teachers in the program at the moment, stunningly successful. Very, very angry teacher educators in other disciplines don't like us doing this. But we actually can actually help teachers at the moment we can point out to them that things like 80% of what happens in the classroom a teacher doesn't see or hear. We can help them see that other 80%. I think there's some stunningly exciting things that are coming um, that I hope I'm around for the next 30 or 40 years to be part of. I know it almost kind of uh, uh, extends the Graham Nuttles kind of work, doesn't it? In a more, uh, in a more, in a, in a much more greater kind of way, actually, and a more, more efficient. One of my students has just replicated Graham's work, like Graham, good Kiwi. He spent. Years collecting that data. We've collected it in three hours because we've got a, a classroom that's completely wired, uh, artificial intelligence, etc. And so, yeah, I think uh, like classroom observation. Like, we've already got an app that we could actually tell you after you teach a class about 16 to 20 dimensions of the Danielson and Mazzano. Uh, we can make a difference at that level. I, I think this is really exciting. Well, this well that that sounds fantastic. I'm sure there's uh, uh, about uh, a thousand PhDs in there. So yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Oh, John, thank you so so much. When I sent the original email out, I didn't actually think that you were going to respond. I, I I know I added a few selfie photos just to make sure that I, I would kind of cue your memory into seeing me in Edinburgh. But uh, I didn't expect you to respond. And then you've been so generous with your time, so generous with your thoughts. So I thank you so much for taking part in this podcast.